It can be really hard for us to relax at night. We're always thinking about covering crime. But the good news is our wonderful new sponsor, Via, has a terrific product that helps us unwind. Via Hemp has a wide range of terrific gummies of both the THC and THC-free varieties. They can help you with focus, recovery, sleep, creativity, or just plain enjoyment. These products legally ship to all 50 states. I really liked Zen in particular. This is a yummy blueberry option that lets you catch a chill sleep with help from CBN and CBD. It's really helped me turn off my brain and settle down for the night. I also got a shout out Flow State. It helped me feel energized throughout the day. Like not to brag, but I got a lot done. I'm talking about doing several interviews and editing a whole show from start to finish, not to mention jumping on some of the latest filings in the cases we cover. It really made me feel sharp and ready to tackle any challenge. I couldn't recommend this more. Via has so many great gummy options to choose from. Everything from guava berry low dose that allows you to microdose THC to the chill-inducing Delta 9 gummy dreams. Head to viahemp.com and use code MSHEET to receive 15% off and one free sample of their award-winning gummies. That's viahemp.com and use code MSHEET at checkout. Please support our show and tell them we sent you. Enhance your every day with Via Hemp. Again, if you're 21 and over, you can get 15% off plus a free pack of award-winning gummies with our exclusive code, msheet at viahemp.com. That's V-I-I-A-H-E-M-P dot com. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Content warning. This episode contains discussion of murder, sexual assault, and violence. The walk was only a mile, but it must have felt very long and very dark to Laurel Jean Mitchell. The night was Wednesday, August 6, 1975. At 10.15 p.m., 17-year-old Laurel clocked out of work at the snack bar at the Cokesbury Inn, a lakeside hall in North Webster, Indiana. The Cokesbury was nestled in the Epworth Forest neighborhood. Epworth Forest started out as a campground site for Methodist groups. It developed into a place where different groups could camp and hold retreats and other activities. There were also a few houses occupied by renters, along with more permanent residents. This was a place for fun and spiritual fulfillment. 
It was also a place for local teenagers like Laurel to earn some money during summer break. That night, after her snack bar shift, Laurel walked down Epworth Forest Road alone. She had plans to meet her friends at Adventureland, a local amusement park. They were going to hang out together at an arcade. The start of August represented the beginning of the end of the summer. The group of girls must have wanted to make the most of whatever unrestricted time they had left. The walk was only about a mile, but the moon was a waning crescent, and there were no streetlights to guide her. Something, somebody, was waiting in the shadows for Laurel. Somebody stopped her from reaching her destination. Somebody prevented her from seeing her friends and her family ever again. She was abducted, sexually assaulted, and murdered that night. Before that happened, Laurel was seen. Two residents saw Laurel that night. One was an elderly woman. She saw the long-haired teenager drifting down the road toward the two stone pillars that still mark the entrance to the Epworth Forest neighborhood. The other witness was a teenage boy who knew Laurel. He waved to her. She waved back at him. Laurel walked through the pillars into the blackness of the night. Then she was gone. My name is Anya Kane. I'm a journalist. And I'm Kevin Greenlee. I'm an attorney. We first connected while looking into the Burger Chef murders, an Indiana cold case. Together, we built a spreadsheet documenting hundreds of cases of restaurant-related homicides. That original spreadsheet gave way to our podcast, The Murder Sheet. Now we maintain that same research-centric, investigative approach as we look into all sorts of homicides, including unsolved cases, historical crimes, and, of course, restaurant murders. We don't just chat about the headlines. Our podcast is a platform for our journalism. The Murder Sheet focuses on investigative reporting, thoughtful analysis, thorough research, and in-depth interviews. We're The Murder Sheet. And this is Beyond the Pillars, The Murder of Laurel Jean Mitchell, Part 1. Before we tell you about Laurel's disappearance and death, let's talk about how she lived. As a murder sheet, it's important to us to try to convey the facets of a person's life, beyond their last moments. It helps us all remember the enormity of the loss. We were fortunate enough to get the chance to talk to Sarah Nisley, Laurel's younger sister. She was only 12 at the time of her sister's murder. Tell me about your sister, Laurel. Oh, my goodness. 
Uh, okay, let me preface this. Being that there was four years difference, I was 12 when this happened. So we were not close. So I was not a big part of her life. Uh, so I'm just kind of from the sidelines. <laughs> um, to Sarah, Laurel always seemed like a stolid older sister. She was the middle child. She mediated conflicts in the family. She, well, she was a middle child. You didn't know she was around. Because, <laughs> you know, I'm the spoiled brat baby, and my brother was older and bossy, and he was just kind of lost in the shuffle. Yeah. Yeah, she was very quiet. Um, I mean, she could get a temper on her, but you had to really work at it. Right. I did that a few times. <laughs> <laughs> yep. As as the oldest child myself, I know how little sisters can be at times. <laughs> yeah. I one one memory I have is I don't know, something was going on. My parents were in our basement. We had a big three story house. And the three of us kids were in the living room putting puzzles together. And she was on a coffee table by herself and my brother and I were on a card table together. And him and I got into it and I got mad and I have a temper and I flipped that card table on its side and just scattered puzzle everywhere. So here's poor Laurel picking up all the puzzle pieces because she's the only one left. <laughs> the rest of us were sent to a room. Aww. So yeah, that, that was Laurel. She just kind of cleaned up the messes. Now, Sarah has taken it upon herself to work to help put together the puzzle of her older sister's murder. She's become an advocate for Laurel, whose voice was silenced forever on a summer night decades ago. The work Sarah is doing to raise awareness about her sister's case is extremely admirable. Here are her recollections of Laurel. She was a quiet girl, but one with a wry sense of humor. Well, like at the dinner table, my brother and I sat beside each other at the back side of the table, and she sat at the end by the stove. So she called it the mage chair because every time somebody wanted something, she had to get up and get it because <laughs> we were behind the table. Too hardy for us to get out. Oh, my god! Of course, Mom and Dad would say, you know, get, you know, get me this, give me that. So she's like, this is the mage chair. <laughs> Despite her young age, Laura was also quite dedicated to her faith. Very religious, very dedicated to the church and her singing and her friends. And she babysat a lot. She was uh, in high school. She was uh, majoring in business and had planned to go to International Business College. She was very good at that. And she was a middle child, so she kind of was neglected. <laughs> What church was she a part of? Can you tell us more about that? I know that was very important oh, to her. Uh, the, it was the North Webster United Methodist. And, um, you know, you mentioned, and I saw in the articles that she was part of a singing group uh, with the church. Mm -hmm. Can you uh, can you speak a little bit more about that and what that entailed? The name of the group was God's Children, and they toured around the U.S. in the summer and performed. They went to Oklahoma and all over the South Southwest. And uh, they made a couple records, and it was just something that there was a lot of them, and it was a really big group. I went to a lot of the rehearsals and practices because she had to babysit. So, 
that dragged me where she went. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, it was it was fun, and they were really good. That sounds like it was pretty fun for her. For pretty cool for a seventeen year old to be able to travel so much and perform. Oh, yeah, yep. She really enjoyed it, and I don't I don't really know if she was a good singer or not. She didn't sing at home, but I guess when you're in a group, you can kind of blend in and. But, uh, yeah, she really enjoyed it. She enjoyed being, you know, the, the gospel part of it. And, uh, but they did also some pop songs. I know they did Jeremiah was a bullfrog. (laughs) 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 And, uh, yeah, it was, it was a big part of her life. She was at church three or four nights a week. The God's Children group made a few appearances in the newspaper coverage from back in the seventies. In the November 17, 1973 edition of the Vedette Messenger of Porter County, they're described as a 50-member youth choir from the Youth Methodist Church in North Webster. The director then was Charles Scott, and the focus was on both contemporary and traditional religious songs. In addition to the places Sarah mentioned, the group also toured in Illinois, Kentucky, New York, Ohio, Tennessee, and of course, throughout the Hoosier state. The group even had its own established internal rules and was governed by a board split between young participants and their parents. We were curious to learn more about Laurel's social life. Given your age, a difference, I totally understand if if you don't know, but um, did she have a very active social life? With friends. She didn't have a boyfriend, never had a boyfriend. I mean, there was a boy she liked, but it, it wasn't reciprocated or hadn't got to that point yet, but she went out, they went out as a group of friends, but, but yeah, she, they went out, ran around quite a bit, went to movies and things like that. Were those mostly kids she knew from school or church or a mix? Well, being in such a tiny town, it was all, all the same kids, school, church, the neighborhood. It was, yeah, it was just, we all went to school together. Well, the way our school system was from kindergarten to eighth grade, you went same kids. And then for nine through 12, you went to a, a high school that consolidated three towns into one school. So then you made new friends from different schools. But uh, mostly it was the local kids that grew up in our neighborhood or went to, our, to the North Webster school and church. It sounds like, you know, you know, given how important um, her faith was to her, it sounds like they weren't, uh, she was not hanging out with the crazy party kids. Is that is that fair to say? Not at all. Not at all. Laurel died in August during summer break. She was a rising senior at Wawasee High School, which was situated in nearby Syracuse, Indiana. In 1975, the school was only seven years old having been formed in a merger of schools in Syracuse, Milford, and North Webster. According to the South Bend Tribune, Laurel was an active participant at her school. She belonged to the drama club, took dance classes, and had served as a representative at the 1975 Girls' State, an event put on by the American Legion Auxiliary. We asked Sarah to talk to us about her family. And I guess just tell me a little bit more about the rest of your family and, and sort of your family unit growing up in the town of North Webster. Okay, it was uh, 
mom and dad, and then I have, or we had an older brother, and then her, then me. So it was the five of us, and uh, it's just normal, everyday family. Their father, Richard D. Dick Mitchell, was a machinist at a machine shop. He was a man who was well-known in the community for his active participation in the North Webster Lions Club, his service on the Tippecanoe Township Board, and his elected position as the Tippecanoe Township Trustee. He also served at the North Webster and Tippecanoe Township Fire Department for over 30 years, and was even one of the first drivers for the North Webster Emergency Medical Services, which was founded in 1975. Their mother... Wilma Mitchell, had previously worked at a factory in the Kosciuszko County seat of Warsaw, but that factory closed. Wilma worked on and off after Sarah was born. Ultimately, she began to work at the grocery store across the street from the Mitchell's residence. She started in the meat department, then went over to produce, and finally ended up in the deli department. She worked there for 26 years. Let's stop here for a moment to hear from our terrific sponsors. A weight loss journey can feel like a lonely struggle, but it doesn't have to be. For so many of us, lifestyle changes like deciding to lose weight, adopting a nutritious diet, and taking up fun exercises are all about putting our own health and wellness first. But it can be really hard to know where to begin or how to keep the weight off once we've seen some progress. Quick fixes like soup diets and juice cleanses are unsustainable. There's a much better way to embark on this journey that over 200,000 people have already chosen. We're talking about the Roe Body Program. Here's how it works. Roe gives you access to one of the most popular weight loss shots on the market. Their Roe Body Program then sets up a comprehensive weight loss program tailored to your specific lifestyle, health status, and goals. In addition to the weekly shot, you get one-on-one coaching with a registered nurse. That can help you adopt and stick with lifestyle changes like exercise routines and nutritious diets. It's a comprehensive program that sees participants lose 15 to 20% of their weight in a year on average. But the real benefit is that you keep that weight off. This is weight loss at its most sustainable. With Roe, the average weight loss is 15 to 20% of your weight in one year, in conjunction with healthy lifestyle changes. EMI and other eligibility criteria apply. Go to roe.co slash msheet. Sign up today and you'll pay just $99 for your first month and $145 a month after that. Medication costs are separate. Go to roe.co slash msheet. That's ro.co slash msheet. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. 
Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Sarah also told us about life in North Webster. To a kid, we imagine that North Webster in the 1970s must have seemed like a pretty great place to grow up. You see, North Webster was and is a resort town. It's situated on Webster Lake, a large freshwater lake in Kosciuszko County. According to a 2017 Ink Free News article by Ethan Horst, the lakefront town of North Webster has attracted water sports enthusiasts, steamboat passengers, and fishing festivals for decades. Back in the day, the place had a Mayberry vibe, according to locals. Mayberry is the fictional setting of The Andy Griffith Show. It's small-town America at its best, bucolic, friendly, and very safe. But North Webster also came with a bit of a medieval twist, thanks to the Merlin-esque vision of a local businessman named J. Homer Shoup. As the classic Learner and Little Musical goes, don't let it be forgot that once there was a spot for one brief shiny moment that was known as Camelot. And apparently some wealthy locals wanted to create that in North Webster. The February 10, 1974 issue of the South Bend Tribune features an article about the plans for a new Camelot from reporter Joyce Smith. It announced a 10-year multi-million dollar rebuilding program that was launched in 1971. In the 70s, they did every all the businesses look like King Arthur's court. The, they look like castles. Really? And they and they still do. Yeah, um, the big big shot in town. He, you know, it was King Arthur. We had King Arthur days. <laughs> it was part of the Mermaid Festival. They had athletic competitions, and yeah, there's a great big building in the middle of the town. It was a bank. Started out as a bank and a reception hall, but now it's a shoe store and a coffee shop. But it's a. It looks like a big castle. That must have been kind of delightful to grow up around as a kid. Actually, we, my friend and I, because it was just down the road from us, we sat in uh, some trees in a yard behind the building and watched them build it. <laughs> the, the way, like, summertime, you know, my parents worked, so it was, kids were home alone. And we came and went as we pleased. We just, you know, we ate breakfast with mom and dad left for work and... Laurel and I had chores to do. Mom left us a, a list every morning of what chores we needed to do. And we did those. And then we were free to, and it was like, be home when the noon whistle blows for lunch. And at six o'clock, be home for dinner. They didn't know where we were unless we left a note. But, you know, it's like, well, the bicycle's gone. She's on her bicycle. I could have been down swimming in the lake. I could have been at my friend's house. I could have been riding my bike somewhere, who knows? We, they just trusted us, and, and you were safe. We thought, you know, that you could just go and run around with my friends, and she went with her friends, and a lot of times, though, in the summer, she babysat, but she was right next door to our house, so I could go over there if I needed her, but I was usually home alone right. once I got got old enough. Adventureland offered more fun summer activities for local youngsters. This was an amusement park in North Webster, 
Sarah told us that it did not have an unsavory reputation. It was family-owned, and mostly locals worked there. Just can you tell me a bit about Adventureland? That was the hot spot for summertime. That was a big amusement park. It had miniature golf, it had trampolines, it had fair rides, arcades. It was the place to be. We actually had two. There was one across the road. Same thing. Oh, so you could go. To, yeah. <laughs> two Adventurelands. Wow. Well, there was Adventureland, and I'm not sure what the other one was called now. But it was two two different people owned it, but they were across the road from each other. Wow. Because we when before we moved to the house on Main Street, we lived in a trailer in the trailer court behind the other amusement park across the road, and so we and we were friends with the owners. So um, my dad ran the go karts at night, and so we got to ride the go karts and. When it rained, after it got done raining, they would call us to come over and jump on the trampolines to dry them off. <laughs> <laughs> That's a fun job. Oh, yeah, it was. I mean, we'd just put on old clothes and go dry the trampoline. <laughs> wow. We also got some historical context on North Webster and Kosciuszko County from Greg Steff. He's the co-director of the Old Jail Museum locally and a leader within the Kosciuszko County Historical Society. Here's Greg. We have over 101 lakes in our county, so that's our main draw. And that is the heart of the lakes area, North Webster. And they, they do draw a lot of people in during the summer. Other follow-up, um, anything in your guys' archives, and if you have to check, no worries, uh, just about the mm-hmm. amusement park Adventureland, which um, is where uh-huh. Miss Mitchell was on the way to when she was abducted. Okay, yeah, it was very popular. Guy, when I was growing up back in the seventies, which is ancient times, you know, but uh, yeah, that was that was popular destination for dates and stuff. They had miniature golf, and they had a few amusement rides and trampolines and arcade games. And, and if you live here in in Podunk County, Indiana, where there isn't much going on, that was a big deal. You know, back then, it was at least something to do. Just like today. The summer was also a time for teenagers to snag jobs, so they could save up a bit of spending money. Laurel ended up getting a job at a local place that was then called the Cokesbury Inn. Okay, that was right on the beach. It's kind of like a rec center in the middle, a meeting, because this is in the middle of Epworth Forest, which was a church camp, all these little cabins people from different Methodist church from around the country could come and stay. And they did spend, you know, time at the beach and there was um, a big amphitheater and they had outdoor church services. That's where my brother got married. It's not there anymore. And then this Cokesbury was on the beach. She worked in the snack shop. So you could go up from the beach, go up the stairs to the top deck and you could buy snacks from from when you're at the beach, snow cones and hot dogs and things like that. She worked there. And then below, they rented out inner tubes and things like that. Is this something that people within the community of North Webster would have been going to? Or was it more of like visiting people who were part of the Methodist retreats and things like that? No, because mom took us out there to swim. Mm -mm. It, It was a town. In fact, that is where we took swimming lessons at that beach 
um, the Red Cross came out there to that to the lake, and we did swimming lessons there. And we didn't and, have any pools, <laughs> right? No pools, and and might as well. I mean, and and Laurel was a good swimmer, is my understanding from the article. Is that correct? Yes, we yes we all were. Yeah, we had to be. Yeah, when you live when you live that close to a lake, yeah, yeah. No, certainly that's a matter of safety, obviously. Um. Epworth Forest. Can you give me more of a visual picture of that? Was it a very heavily forested area? What What did it sort of no, look like? No, no. I mean, it's out of town. I don't know. It's probably a mile or so off of State Road 13. Now, at that time, once you turned off 13 and got past the amusement park, there was nothing there until you got to Epworth. So there, she had to walk down a whole stretch of dark, deserted road to get down to the amusement park. Now the church, uh, Methodist church built out there. So the church is out there now. There's farms, there's subdivisions, it's well lit. There's a lot of people. But once you walked out of Epworth Forest off their driveway, there was nothing. It was just pitch black. That road takes you into the game preserve. So, I mean, there was woods, but not real close to the road. There was there was fields and stuff. So now you know more about who Laurel was. She was a quiet, hardworking girl, a young woman of strong faith, an active participant in church and school activities, a strong swimmer. You know where she was coming from on the night she disappeared, the Cokesbury Inn located within the Epworth Forest campgrounds on the shores of Lake Webster. You know where she was going on the evening she vanished. Adventureland, a popular local summer hangout spot. We have given you all the pieces of the puzzle concerning Laurel's murder. At least, all the ones available to us and to Sarah. Next, we will try to piece these together to get into the circumstances around Laurel's death. But remember, there are parts missing, leaving us all with an image that remains disturbingly incomplete. Let's stop here for a moment to hear from our terrific sponsors. Let's talk about Wednesday, August 6, 1975, a cloudy day. That night, Laurel went missing. Before that, things transpired like a relatively normal summer weekday. Laurel went to work at the Cokesbury Inn, as usual. She had plans that night to go to the arcade at Adventureland with her friends. So... Laurel had plans, as I understand it, to meet some friends at Adventureland that night. Um, Correct. So I guess, was that something she kind of told the family ahead of time? Hey, I'm going to be going out. I'll just walk down the road, go to Adventureland, sort of that thing. As far as I know, I don't know what she planned, what she told mom. I, that part, I either don't remember or I wasn't informed. Right. (laughs) You know, she didn't, she didn't okay her plans with me. Yeah, Uh, naturally. uh, now, I've talked to some of her friends, and they said that they always picked her up afterwards, that they never let her walk down there, or our neighbor picked her up, because we only had one car, and if Dad was out at, you know, fireman's meeting or Lions Club or who knows what, we didn't have a car to go get her, and the neighbor girl was, she, my mom practically adopted her, so... She's only a couple years older than my brother. She was very close to Laurel, and uh, she would go get her. But uh, 
Yeah, I don't know. I don't know how that transpired, how she ended up walking. I really don't. From what people told me, nobody let her walk. But somebody let her walk. Let's stop here for a moment to hear from our terrific sponsors. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Audible is the destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Allow your imagination to be piqued by stories that are brought to life through captivating sound design, eerie soundscapes, and dynamic performances. As an Audible member, you'll be able to keep your heart rate up month after month because you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. If you're in the mood for a shocking psychological thriller, check out None of This is True by Lisa Jewell. Embrace brand new exclusive thrillers from bestselling authors who are guaranteed to keep you gripped. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500. That's audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is. And it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Laura left Cokesbury around 10.15 p.m., according to contemporary newspaper reports. This is not one of those stories where someone disappears into thin air after leaving work, though. Laurel was seen during her walk into the darkness. On July 27, 2022, Sarah and Indiana State Police Captain Kevin Smith, who is the lead investigator on this case, visited the area of Epworth Forest where Laurel was last spotted. A photo that ran in Ink Free News depicts Sarah and Captain Smith standing at the entrance by two tall stone pillars. That's where the elderly woman and Laurel's friend last saw her walking. After that, we don't know what happened to her. Keep in mind, when Sarah refers to a Kevin, she's talking about ISP's Captain Smith, not the murder sheet's own Kevin Greenlee. So she ends up walking. It's, as you mentioned, it's pitch dark. It's very dark, but it's only a mile. I understand that one person who lived around there did see her. Um, can you tell us about that witness sighting? Actually, um, this last article where Kevin and I were standing out there, there was actually two. I didn't know about the old lady across the street. One of her friends lived right there on the corner, Scott Pruitt, and he waved at her as she was walking by. And he lived right there at the entrance to the Tepper Forest. But I guess an, an older lady across the street saw her too. But that's the last time anybody saw her was right there at the entrance to the to the park or the Epworth Forest. So the old lady was able to corroborate uh, yes. that story. Mm-hmm. And when you say the gates to the forest, um, what does, yes. what do they look well, like? Well, there's, there is no gate. It's big, two big stone pillars that say Epworth Forest. 
you drive in through there and, and you go back and it's just a warren of little side roads that are barely big enough for one car and houses are like a foot apart and they're just stacked in there willy nilly. And yeah, it's a crazy place. Um, is that the way to Adventureland or would that have been a detour? No. Adventureland is right on 13. So you would have turned off the 13 at Adventureland to go back east towards Epworth Forest. Right. And and you said it's kind of a, it's like a housing division, basically? There's houses back there? Now, yeah. And the church built their big old church back there and there's an apartment complex just in front of the church and there's it's just yeah there's houses all over now back in 75 what would have uh, that area been like was it not developed at that point nope and once you got past adventureland there was nothing there was like maybe one house way down so is there any reason that she would have been crossing through those pillars and going that way well, that's how you had to come out of Epworth Forest. She would have walked. You had to turn in at the pillars and go down and around the curve to Cokesbury. So she would have had to walk up from Cokesbury up to that. I don't even know what the name of that road is. Well, it's Epworth Forest Road. And she would have went out through the pillars to Epworth Forest Road and turned left and gone towards 13. Got it. And then from, from 13 to Adventureland. That makes sense. Yeah, it's Yeah, it's just right there at the corner of 13 and Epper Forest Road where Adventureland was. Mm-hmm. So she would have just walked in the back gate and gone in. And so her, her friends never meet up with her that night. They end up going uh-huh. to a county fair, as I understand it. Co- yeah, Costco County Fair. And um, was it very unusual for Laurel not to come home at night? She had a midnight curfew in the summer. So... When she didn't walk in that front door at midnight or call to say she was going to be late, my mom was knew something was wrong. I was still up too. She called the police right away because of who, you know, they knew Laurel, knew she wasn't out messing around. And, you know, told them she was supposed to get off work. She was supposed to walk down to Upper Forest and then be home by midnight. And she was not home. And her friend was not there at that time. So the police started looking right away. And then a few minutes after midnight, here comes her friend. Her friend was from Michigan, was staying with us. Laurel's friend was a girl her age from Detroit, Michigan. They'd been introduced by a mutual friend, and they clicked. The girl from Detroit was staying with the Mitchell family that summer. She was also one of the kids who was supposed to hang out with Laurel that night, along with the mutual friend who introduced them. Let's just stop here for a moment to focus on Laurel's friends. Teenagers, and young people in general, do not possess fully formed minds. That can lead to behavior that seems selfish, irrational, and impulsive. That's not to say that all teens and young people are universally selfish, irrational, and impulsive at all times. Just that when kids make choices that look baffling to adults, it's important to keep the brain development angle in mind. It doesn't excuse mistakes, but it can partially explain certain careless decisions, which is important to keep in mind when studying crimes. And she walked in the door and my mom goes, where's Laurel? And she's like, isn't she here? And she's, no, she's with you. She goes, no, 
no, she's not with me. Well, you were going to Adventureland. Well, we decided to go to the county fair. So they just left her hanging. She didn't know they weren't going to be there. My mom was so mad at her. To the, to the day she died, she never forgave her. And that friend packed her bag and went to another friend that night. She was not welcome. Making plans to meet a friend who lacked a car of her own, and then blowing that off to go to the Kosciuszko County Fair, probably strikes most people as a pretty horrible thing to do. We have not been able to talk to anyone who was privy to the plans to find out more about why this happened. Of course, any possible reasoning would be cold comfort for Laurel's family. According to Sarah, they seem to have been left with the impression that Laurel was spending time with her friends, that her friends would pick her up from work to go to Adventureland. Instead, it seems that no one picked up Laurel. If she had indeed been expecting a ride, she would have essentially been left stranded. She then seemingly attempted to walk the route herself, in the dark, alone. Then the worst happened. We asked Sarah what she thought about the kids leaving Laurel behind to go to the fair. Stupid kids? I don't know. You know, you don't think when you're that age. Sarah heard one unconfirmed story from the mutual friend who introduced Laurel and the girl from Detroit. The mutual friend said that another friend was working at a Ben Franklin store in nearby Syracuse. She got off work at 9.30 p.m. that night, and she was going to pick Laurel up at the Cokesbury Inn. But when they got there, Laurel wasn't there. So, I'm like, she was supposed to work till 10, but at 9.30 she wasn't there. Whether, don't know if she got off work early. I... To me, I don't know. That story never jibed. So I'm not sure what happened there. I would have to get it from another person that was around at that time before I would believe it. The mutual friend also told Sarah that the police grilled the friend group after Laurel's murder for days. But past midnight, nobody knew that Laurel was definitely gone. Her mother, Wilma, was angry and scared. Her father, Dick, arrived home at 1 a.m. He went on a search of his own, driving around the Epworth Forest neighborhood to see if Laurel had been hit by a car, if she was lying dead or injured in a ditch. Sarah herself was only 12. She does not remember feeling too frightened. She doesn't come home at midnight. Your mom is, 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 is um, you know, deeply upset, deeply furious with, with this friend that kind of ditched her. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. what are you thinking? You're 12. I mean, uh, uh, you must've been pretty frightened. Can you, can you talk us through what you're sort of seeing and, and thinking that evening? Actually, I wasn't all that upset. I wasn't worried. I mean, it, we lived in Mayberry. I mean, what was going to happen to her other than that? She was kind of clumsy and might've fell down and hurt herself, but, um, she, she danced ballet. That was another big thing of her. She was big in ballet. She could dance. She was a big girl. She was like a size 16, so she wasn't a petite little ballerina, but she could dance. She couldn't walk. She's always hurting herself walking, but she could dance. Mm-hmm. And uh, and that's where a lot of these girls all went to dance class together. And they just everything they did, they were together, some part of the group. 
So anyway, um, yeah, I wasn't really that worried. I mean, I knew my mom was worried, but a lot of that time's hazy for me too. I think I eventually fell asleep on the couch and then woke up in the morning and she still went home. And of course, you know, dad's in the home, mom's home. My brother was in the, in the army and he was stationed in California. So he was not even around. We had to emergency get him home. That afternoon I had a softball game. So they told me to go. So I went right in the middle of my softball game. The neighbor lady pulls up in the car and I just, yelled at my coach. I was leaving now off the gate. I went and I said, is this about Laurel? And she said, yep. And we drove in the driveway and it's four cop cars. And I was like, Oh my God, what's going on? So <clears throat> as soon as I walk in the door, my dad tells me she's dead. And it was just a shock. The Mitchell family was left shattered. The investigation into Laurel's death began. The circumstances in which Laurel was found were pretty horrific. Two fishermen discovered her the next day in the southern branch of the Elkhart River in Noble County. That's about 20 miles to the northeast of North Webster. Laurel had drowned, despite being a strong swimmer. She had also been sexually assaulted. Her body didn't show many signs of physical trauma beyond that. Ink-Free News reported that she had abrasions under her arms. Sarah also knew of a bruise on the back of her hand, possibly indicating a tooth mark. It's unclear if a toxicology report was done on her body. Police instantly seemed to believe that it was a homicide and not an accident. Contemporary reporting said the gruesome discovery in the river happened at around 10 a.m. or noon the next day although Sarah told us it was more like 6 a.m. What do you remember about that day? A lot of crying. Cops all over the place, going through her room, going through her stuff. Um, They brought... The state police ran on it by then. Um, Very nice detectives. And they brought big books and mug shots and told me to sit down and go through them and see if I recognized anybody. And I didn't. So that's just, it was just cops all the time. And then uh, the funeral. That was <sighs> we lived three houses away from the funeral home. And we could look at our kitchen window and see the lights to the embalming room. We knew even though we were there working on her. And the undertaker, because she was ended up in Fort Wayne, because she was found in Noble County. So she, they took her to Fort Wayne and to do the autopsy and... Our neighbor, Gary, the undertaker, he, uh, he identified her body. So my parents didn't have to. Oh, I'm sorry. When he kept her 47 years, it would be this bad. Don't, don't apologize, Sarah. I'm so sorry. And uh, we had her viewing at the funeral home. 
And uh, of course, I my my mom came from a family of ten, so it was a lot of family. My my dad was the oldest of four, so we had a lot of family plus the whole town and all the kids from the school. So this, there were so many flowers. They took up all the room in the funeral home. We had to move the funeral to the church. And there were still people. When we walked out to get in the cars to go to the cemetery, we're standing outside because they couldn't get in the church. It was just overwhelming. And I don't remember a lot of the funeral. Um, my brother got home and we sat in the pew. It was mom and then dad and then me and then my brother and his wife. And they, my dad, my brother, each had a hold of a hand. And it seemed like the longer the sermon went on, the tighter they squeezed. <laughs> but and that was okay. Yeah, I don't really remember the the service itself. Just that's all I remember. So I'm holding my hand and then walking out the door to all those people. And then I don't even remember this. We got in a car to go to the cemetery, but I don't even remember that part. I'm so I'm so sorry. And you went through this at such a young age too. Yeah, it was rough. It was it was after the life afterwards that was really rough. About my parents and their grief, but they ended up divorcing five years later, and uh, and it was just me and mom. It, it's hell on earth. Um, and I'll tell you, my mom. She, mm-hmm. She was a trooper. She she went on one foot in front of the other, and and I asked for one. So I said, uh, we were watching a, something on TV about a grieving mother, and she was falling apart, and you know couldn't take care of her other kids. And I said, "Why didn't you do that?" And she's like, "I had to work. I had to take care of you. I had to keep a roof over your head because I didn't have time to fall apart. I just felt so bad." She barely had time to grieve. They they gave her a couple days off work for the funeral, and then she went back to work. And so it's bad. It's just like life went on, but it didn't. You know what I mean? Yes. And, you know, silent dinner, because everybody was lost in their own thoughts. There's an empty chair there, and... It was very hard. I'm so sorry, Sarah. Oh, thank you. I, your mom sounds like an incredibly strong person. Oh, she was. She, she was the best. She was my best friend. I miss her a lot too. Have she and your dad since passed on? Yes, they both died in 2012 within three months of each other. Oh, my goodness. They'd been divorced for 31 years. My dad had remarried, but they still loved each other. <laughs> and dad got sick first, and 
he got hepatitis C from uh, working on the ambulance back in you know in the seventies before they knew about hepatitis C. And you know he cleaned up blood. They didn't wear gloves or anything, and it was undiagnosed for about twenty years. And then by then he didn't have any insurance. He couldn't treat it. And by the time he got sick, he was in stage four cirrhosis. He was, they got the diagnosis in October, and he died in January. But my brother and I helped take care of him every day at home so he could stay home, not have to go to a nursing home. It, your family has been through so much, but it really sounds like you guys took care of each other. We do. And we did, yeah. And then after Dad died in January, then Mom got sick in February, and she died in April. And... It was just a one-two punch. I can't, I truly can't imagine. I hope you never have to. Yeah. I just, um, yeah. I'm, I'm so sorry your family went through all this. Thank you. The struggles that the Mitchell family endured after Laurel's murder are heartbreaking to hear about. This is a testament to the wreckage a homicide particularly one that is brutal and unsolved, can leave in its wake. Tomorrow, we will share with you the second and final part of our in-depth look into Laurel's case. We will go over the numerous leads that have come up in this case over the years. We will scrutinize the goings-on in North Webster, particularly the Epworth Forest campgrounds in August 1975. And we'll talk about a number of terrifying crimes that could be possibly related to Laurel's murder. Thanks so much for listening to The Murder Sheet. If you have a tip concerning one of the cases we cover, please email us at murdersheet at gmail.com. If you have actionable information about an unsolved crime, please report it to the appropriate authorities. If you're interested in joining our Patreon, that's available at www.patreon.com slash murder sheet. If you want to tip us a bit of money for records requests, you can do so at www.buymeacoffee.com slash murder sheet. We very much appreciate any support. Special thanks to Kevin Tyler Greenley, who composed the music for The Murder Sheet, and who you can find on the web at kevintg.com. If you're looking to talk with other listeners about a case we've covered, you can join the Murder Sheet discussion group on Facebook. We mostly focus our time on research and reporting, so we're not on social media much. We do try to check our email account, but we ask for patience as we often receive a lot of messages. Thanks again for listening.